I mentioned it once already, but I'll say it again before he walks out the door. It's been said of Pat Rebar that he plays the piano like a football player. <laughs> Beautifully, Pat. <laughs> Pray with me one more time if you would. Lord, it's uh, just a great privilege to be able to not only know what we're supposed to do, knowing that you call us to come together as the body of Christ. Lord, it's a great privilege to even have the desire to do that, as is evidenced by the, pow- as the power of the- your Spirit at work in our lives. There are so many other things we could be doing, and there are so many other things that call for our attention, and yet not only do you call us to gather like this for, for encouragement and for worshiping you together, you actually give desires. And so we are thankful for such good things. And we would ask that you might help us during this particular time to better understand you and your will and to be more impressed with your grace and with your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, uh, a dear Christian woman who was a member of Omaha Bible Church uh, died. And we had the funeral service at the church and then we went to the graveside and uh, I remember the day rather well. Um, she had suffered for quite some time and it was, it was indeed a day of rejoicing. She wasn't suffering anymore and she loved Christ and uh, it was in so many ways, it was a good day, a good day of closure. But I remember walking away from the graveside and watching my mother who was there, walking with some children from the church and they strayed away from the, the road, the cemetery. And uh, I knew where my mother was walking because I knew what part of the cemetery we were in. She was walking over to my father's grave. And obviously to go there and remember him, uh, perhaps even to show these children, this is where her husband was buried, where my dad was buried. I found out later that she specifically wanted to show those children who were with her Not only did that tombstone say Lee Henry Abendroth with his birth date and his date of passing, that tombstone next to my father's name said Carla Ann Abendroth with the date of her birth, November 8th, 1938-blank. pretty strange, pretty sobering, and she wanted those kids to see that, and she wanted to have a conversation with those kids about the reality that while she didn't know what that last date would be, the last date was coming. In hindsight, she knows now, and we know that was 2005, but for all of those years since my dad had died... And she chose to have her name put on the tombstone at the same time they put his name on there. She had a great reminder that she was mortal. And that one day she would die and she would meet her maker. She had a great way of remembering that her days were numbered. Now, I'm not going to ask you to all go out this week and buy headstones. Okay? And have your names engraved and have them placed somewhere because we need to number our days. But it was a good tool for her, no doubt, to do that. And Psalm 90, verse 12 does say, Teach us to number our days, 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. So whether or not you have your name on a tombstone already, the reality is you do have your name on a tombstone. And you don't know what that blank is going to be filled in with, but God does know that blank is going to be filled in. In fact, in Psalm 139, we learn that God has our days numbered. And so, in Psalm 90, we're learning that we too are to number our days. Last Sunday, we started looking at Psalm 90. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. But we looked at Psalm 90, which is about life and death. It's about the reality that that the human race has rebelled against God. God has given what He said He would give, and that would be death and suffering that surrounds death. And so it's a pretty dark psalm at the beginning in Psalm 90, but then we learn of redemption. We learn of God's grace and God's mercy where we can face death, we can face suffering because we are a part of this fallen world and we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, but we can actually face it and go through life even amidst the suffering knowing that the death, our death is actually coming with a degree of gladness actually with rejoicing along the way in this intermixture of suffering, there can be gladness and joy. And so if you will, Psalm 90 uh, A is about law. We get what we deserve. But Psalm 90 B is about grace and there is hope in redemption ultimately through Christ. Well, we laid the groundwork last time in Psalm 90. If you weren't here last week, that's fine. We'll bring you up to speed. But we're going to leave Psalm 90, but not altogether. We'll have it be our foundation. I'd encourage you to listen to our study uh, online or get the CD, because Psalm 90 is, is just an awesome psalm when it comes to thinking through life and death. And it's a reality for every one of us. I don't tr- need to try to come up with a, a, a cute hook to try to convince you that this is relevant. Um, it's for sure relevant. It's for sure relevant for all of us. But what I want to do this morning is move to the next level, so to speak. Let's talk about numbering our days. Let's talk about now living in light of dying. The day is coming, and so what do we need to know about life as it would relate to death? And so that w- that's what we'll do this morning. We'll look at three, let's call them three big things. Three big things that are important to know about death. These are three realities that we really need to understand and know if we're going to understand how to live in light of our coming dying. Number one, know that the end is coming. Know that the end is coming. That's kind of a no-brainer, I realize. There are cemeteries all around. There are hospitals all around. There's hospice care. There's all kinds of turmoil and suffering in our world. You know people that you love who've died. You know people that you love, if it's not even you, who's suffering and getting older perhaps, or even as a younger person. It's all around us. But we love to be in denial, don't we? No longer do we have the graveyard outside the church to walk by every Sunday when you would come in. No longer do people die at home very often. And I'm not saying there aren't pros and cons with these things, but just to state the obvious, you're going to breathe your last breath. And so am I. And your heart's going to stop someday. You're not going to have a pulse. And the same is true for me too. 
And if we're called to God teach us to number our days so that we might have wisdom, it starts with saying, we know we're going to die. It's going to happen. And so let's just come to grips with that very basic reality. Psalm 90, verse 10, you can even look there if you have Psalm 90 open. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Some people live older than that. Some people don't live that long. But the general rule of thumb is 70, 80 years old and, and, and that's it. And we need to know this so we'll never have a heart of wisdom. We'll never be able to number our days because we think we live forever, but we don't live forever. So let's know that the end is coming. I mentioned last time over 150,000 people, somewhere between 150 and 200,000 people die every day. That's pretty staggering. Not to mention all the people who are suffering, who are waiting for their next day. It's absolutely amazing. In Genesis, early on in the book of Genesis, you have that pattern, that haunting pattern. So-and-so lived, so-and-so died. In fact, it goes this, this way. It names him, talks about him, and he died. Next guy, and he died. Next guy, and he died. Next guy, and he died. And even though the whole Bible doesn't do that, it's never stopped. That record is broken, and it's still playing right now. You know what a record is? <laughs> They're cool again, so of course you do. And he died, and she died, and he died, and she died, and he died, and she died, and he died, and she died 150,000 to 200,000 times every day. Pat Abendroth lived, Pat Abendroth died. And you can put your name in there. It's just how it is. It's reality. And we would be foolish. We wouldn't have a heart of wisdom if we didn't think in those terms. I was thinking about myself, of course, because that's what I do. I'm selfish. Um, thinking about myself in these terms in practical ways and thinking if, if I live to be as old as my dad lived to be, I have 14 years left. Hmm. It's kind of sobering. I might live a lot longer. I might not live 14 minutes. It'd be a short sermon. Praise Jesus. <laughs> These are important things to think about to the point where Moses, he's called the man of God, says, God, teach us to number our days. You need to number your days. And it starts by knowing that you are going to die. We need to come to grips with that. You know the saying, two absolutes in life, death and taxes. And you know that it's not true. Because you know some people somehow avoid paying their taxes. If you know how to do that, I want to talk. No, I don't, actually. <laughs> the one absolute, among others, but in that say, saying, your heart's going to stop. So is mine. So let's know that the end is coming. It is a reality and it is sure. Let's move on to another absolute. I'm really driving to number three. Primarily, because I really eventually want to get to the pastoral nuts and bolts of things. Um, but number two, another big thing you need to know, know what happens at the end. Know what happens at the end. And I don't mean physically, although let's just talk about that and consider that a little bit because it's so sobering and in a sense so troubling. What happens when you die? We'll get to the spiritual part in a second, but what happens when you die? Even It's kind of weird to think about physically. 
Some of you have seen that a lot more than I have. What happens? I read a book a number of years ago, ago called Stiff. It was all about the history of dead bodies and how they've been treated. And it was... You want to borrow it? <laughs> it was bizarre. It was weird. It was eerie. It was troubling. But in one sense, I think it was pretty helpful. Because it's just this reminder that this is what people have been dealing with ever since Adam. And there's no way to make it pretty as hard as we try. I was at one graveside service a number of years ago as well. Just thinking about how unsettling death is. And this is a church member's grandparent, an unbeliever. And this man said, would you please come to the graveside service? Would you preach the gospel and pray? Um, that would mean a lot to me. And I said, sure, I will. And uh, freezing cold day, you know, one of those, one of those days, one of those God-awful days. Because you remember, the winter's a result of the fall, right? I couldn't resist. Because <laughs> winter brings death, and death is, anyway. We're all supposed to love summer. One of those days, in all seriousness, and it's freezing cold. And even though no one would say it, I think a lot of people, what they were thinking was, when can we go back to our running cars? Because everyone here is miserable. And so it seemed to go well, preaching hope in Christ to those who are living. And we do go back to our cars. And for whatever reason, it just struck me, sitting there in my car, thinking, what about that guy? It was like something was wrong. He's going to freeze. You know what? He wasn't going to freeze. He's dead. He doesn't feel anything. But it seemed really, really odd to me. He was alive a few days before and he would have frozen. And now he's dead and it doesn't matter, so we're going to leave him out there. Oh, and what's more, they're going to put him in the ground in that locked box. And even talking about it starts to kind of make my, my chest get a little tight to feel kind of claustrophobic. It's really final. And you know what? It should trouble us, I think. Because it wasn't supposed to be like this. We learned about that in Psalm 90. This is a world gone wrong because of rebellion and us getting what God said He would give us, when you rebel against Me, you will die. And there will be death in this world. The physical side should bother us. It's not right. It's not normal. It's not just a natural part of life. It's, it's, it's messed up. But let's talk about what happens when you die spiritually. That's really what I wanted to get at. What happens when you breathe your last breath, the last gasp of air? Let's look at it from if there is redemption. If you're left alone and nothing, there's no spiritual change in your life. And then let's look at it if you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's look at it in those two terms. Let's turn to a couple of passages regarding what happens when a person dies if they are not a Christian, if they've never repented of their sins, they're not trusting in Christ. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19 would be one text to go to. Revelation 20 would be another. 
Let's well, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. At the end of the Bible, you'll find 2 Peter. So find Revelation, start working your way backward, and you'll find 2 Peter. And I'll, I'll put it in another terms while you're still looking for 2 Peter. What happens if people just get what they deserve and there's no intervention? What happens if people just get what's fair instead of grace through Christ? And I'll give you the overview preview before we look at the text. If you get what's fair, you not only get physical death, you get eternal death. Waiting for what the Bible calls the second death, which is an eternal suffering because you're getting what you deserve for rebelling against God. This is not good at all. But if you're not a Christian, a genuine Christian, trusting in Christ and Christ alone, do you want to know what happens when people die? I know what happens when people die. The Bible tells us what happens when people die. Revelation 20 is a place we're eventually going to need to go. But on our way there, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the context is false teachers, uh, but it certainly will work in general uh, reality. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And, here's what I wanted you to see, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We're on to something here. To keep the unrighteous, that would be everyone based upon Romans chapter 3, apart from divine intervention, under punishment until the day of judgment. So when someone dies, we'll get to Revelation, and then turn to Revelation 20 once you, you have that in your mind. There is a punishment that happens while someone's awaiting judgment. So we could have started in Revelation 20. That's what I did in first service, and I think this might be better to follow the chronology. But then we're eventually waiting a final sentencing to go to the, to go to the, to the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. But it's not like there's soul sleep in the mid, in the, in the meantime. Uh, it's not like there's purgatory and you may get out in the meantime. There is judgment, or excuse me, there is punishment awaiting judgment. So when someone dies, you say, what happens when you die? If you're not a Christian, you die and there's immediate punishment. This is historic, confessional Christianity, and certainly it is biblical. It's not a good thought. It's not a happy thought. But as we'll see, it's fair. It is certainly fair because this God all along has been saying, if you rebel against me, it means death. And we know it's not just physical death because Adam and Eve didn't die right away physically. But there was alienation right away. And so when people die who have no forgiveness and no redemption, there is suffering. Revelation chapter 20 takes us to the very end, the end of the end of the end of the end, if you will. And here we see this courtroom kind of scene, chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. So notice there's books. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we've got the book of life open to see whose name is in it. We've got these other books opened. And for reasons we're not going to get into now, you could even check the audio if you wanted to do a deeper study. It would seem that no one is there at this judgment whose name is written in the book of life, but the book is open. This is a place for, for people getting what they deserve. This is not a place for the redeemed. But no, do notice it goes on to say, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They're not judged according to the book of life here. They're judged according to the books, according to what they had done. 
So what's recorded in these books? What they had done. You want fair? God says, here are the books. Here's the ledger. Here's the running tally of what you've done. Justice is going to be served. No one on that day will be able to justly say, God, you're unjust. Because here's the record of everything. It's a very, very fair courtroom kind of scene. Then 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them. Again, it emphasizes according to what they had done. Fair, 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 fair. Let's not get into uh, even the significance behind verse 13 and all these different places. Let's see the main point. And the main point is from uh, the funnel is everyone who has died is there who is going to get what's fair for them. All those whose names have not been written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, all the dead are gathered there and they're going to get what they deserve. And then it says in verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So when somebody dies apart from Christ, they're under punishment, just punishment, awaiting ultimate punishment at the great white throne. What's even more troubling about this is if we pay attention to the context, we look at verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. So, talking about the same place, talking about the devil though, but we learn a lot about what happens there. And sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is why Christians believe in an eternal hell. Jesus said, where the worm never dies, somehow it lasts forever and ever, and it's fair. People get what they deserve. They've rebelled against the eternal creator God, and the punishment for that is eternal condemnation. Not a pretty picture, not encouraging, unsettling, But if you ask what happens when somebody dies, justice. And justice means suffering. Justice means death. And justice means when it comes to an eternal God, it doesn't end. Perhaps if you offended a temporal creature like me, the suffering could one day end. This is cosmic rebellion against the eternal God of all creation. Jesus said in Luke 12, 5, But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wow. It's bad. You say, why are you telling us all that? I thought this was a Christian service. Because the Christian book, the Bible, has a lot to say about this reality. Now, What happens when you die if you're a Christian? Now let's think happy thoughts. (laughs) Okay, Let's look at two passages about what happens when Christians die. Luke chapter 23 and Philippians chapter 1. Then we're going to start unpacking practicalities of this. Luke 
Luke 23, 43 is a passage you'll, you'll know once you hear it, even if you don't know it off the top of your head. So upon breathing my last breath, if I am in Christ, if I'm a Christian, if you breathe your last breath, you join the other 150 plus thousand people today, you breathe your last breath, but you are trusting in Christ as your Redeemer, what's going to happen? Well, let's learn from the thief on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's where the hallelujah chorus revs up and we go, yes! We're going to talk about how that can be. It can be, and it can even be just and fair in a certain sense. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But please do notice... You've got the one of the thieves on the cross. There are two thieves. And he says to the one of them, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. You're not going to have to go somewhere else and suffer. And remember, he was a bad guy. You don't get crucified for petty theft. You get crucified for trying to overthrow the government. You get crucified in a Roman context for being some sort of radical murderer. He was a bad dude. In fact, if you look at all the gospel accounts and you see both of the thieves are insulting Jesus. That's pretty bad, I think, by any estimation. <laughs> okay, The king of glory and you're insulting him? It's bad. He's a bad guy. But grace visits him. Redemption visits him. So much so, again, if you look at all of the accounts, he's eventually telling the other guy to shut his mouth. Not only that, he's crying out to Jesus on the cross. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That right there is is fruit of a changed heart already. In in front of the, the one who's hanging on the cross, who doesn't look like any Lord who's over any kingdom, that takes a transformed heart to say in front of all these people who are crucifying Him, mocking Him, to say, Lord, remember me in Your kingdom. It's, it's amazing. It's grace. But that's not our point for right now, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> point for right now is Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not a stretch to say, when you die, if you're trusting in Christ as the one thief was, Instant heaven, you're with him in paradise. In case you're wondering, how could Jesus say that given that he was in the grave for three days? If you're not wondering, you should be. (sighs) Because his body was in the grave for three days. Instantly, he himself was in his Father's presence. That's how he could say that. Just like when you die, your spirit will be in the presence of God, but your body will await resurrection. Let's look at another passage. Philippians chapter 1 is another good one. It really just is supporting the same point, but I didn't want to just base it on one passage. But one passage is certainly enough. These are the things that are supposed to comfort us and they are to encourage us. Philippians 1.20, you know the context perhaps, to where Paul is really struggling. He's imprisoned by the Romans and he doesn't know if they're going to let him out or they're going to chop his head off. Uh, is this going to be one of the times when he gets out? Is it not going to be one of the times when he gets out? And he's in, in you know... He's conflicted, if you will. Verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be, be at all ashamed, but that will full, have full occur, 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, it's a life and death matter. For to me, to live is Christ. So if I still live, I'm going to live for Christ. And to die is gain. Now, he hasn't totally solved it for us yet, but please do see that he doesn't equate death with nothing. To die is soul sleep. To die is suffering for a while to work off my sins. To die is gain. It's good. I know that if I keep living, I'm going to live for the glory of Christ like I have been since I've been saved. But if I die, it's good. In fact, he even unpacks it more. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Do notice the connection now. Now it's become very clear. To die... Or to depart, those are used synonymously, is to be with Christ. He believes the same thing Jesus believes and the same thing Jesus teaches us in Luke 23. If I die, I'll be with Christ. And that's even better. Apostle Paul would also teach in other places, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, if you're a Christian, and the screen goes flatline, Paul would say it's better. No more suffering. No more pain. Because you're with Jesus. And that's the Christian worldview. When you die, you're with Christ. And we cling to that. And we are thankful for a Savior that rose again from the dead, proving that this is indeed possible. And that He wasn't just some sort of religious guru walking around like a crazy person. So... This is encouraging to us. It's meant to be encouraging to us. One more thing, just quickly. When you die, you're with Christ, but you do wait for a new body. You do wait for a new body. We won't take the time, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 would help us to understand this. There was a, uh, a controversy going on because the Thessalonian Christians were, were so upset and troubled because Christians they knew were dying. And how is this going to work in the resurrection when we get new bodies? And are they going to be left? And, and if the Lord comes back and takes us home to be with Him, because we're supposed to live with that kind of expectation, what about, you know, Sister Lisa? Or what about, you know, Aunt Flo? And what about all these other believers? And, and, and how does this work? And the Apostle Paul makes the point clear. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we will be with them and we'll meet the Lord. In one sense, there's no division. We're all together. Don't worry about it. But if it makes you feel any better, they'll rise first. Okay? First Thessalonians, you don't need to turn there. First Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But here's something I want you to see in that context. When you die, you'll be with Jesus if you're a Christian, and you'll get a new body later with everyone else. But do notice it says in verse 18 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's meant to be encouraging. Jesus, by nature of His work and His resurrection, fixes the problem. Not only are we going to be with Him, but we actually will have everything fixed and we will have glorified bodies. And the older I get, the better that sounds. When Christians die, they're with Jesus, 
awaiting their glorified body so we all get them at the same time. <laughs> Number three, next big thing to know. Know how to be ready for the end. Know how to be ready for the end. How to be ready spiritually, positionally, how to make sure that you're on the plane on the right team, and how to be ready practically in your Christian living. Let me do what I like to do. Maybe I overuse it, but it seems to be effective. Kind of ignoring all the things we've talked about so far, which is impossible. If you want to be ready for the end and go to heaven, just be perfect. There you go. Well, let me put it in other terms, biblical terms. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. All the time with perfect motives since you've been born. There you go. Good news. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. <laughs> but see, that's not good news. That's what the law says. But it's not good news because I'm a lawbreaker and so are you. And even when we do the right thing on the outside, uh, the motives are at best suspect sometimes, if not always, when it comes to ultimate motives. But please make no mistake about it. Apart from perfection, you will never see the light of day in heaven. And you say, I don't think so. I think that pastor's teaching something false because salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. You're right. And that fits the perfect paradigm. Perfectly. <laughs> you have to be perfect to get to heaven. Jesus even said, unless your righteousness exceeds the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. You say, what? How does this work? It works because of the cross. It works because of what led to the cross. It works what comes after the cross. Please track with me here. Jesus is perfect. And Jesus came not to abolish the law, but he said to fulfill the law. Jesus loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. Jesus did everything perfectly. And then he perfectly went to the cross and atoned for all of our imperfections. Read sins, rebellion. And then Jesus rose again from the dead on our behalf. What you need is to be declared perfect. And the Bible calls that justification. And we Christians love the reality of justification because we love Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, and then we'll talk about the practical side of doing this as a Christian, this preparing for death. But you can't be prepared for death unless you have perfection on your side. So if I say, what have you done to prepare to die? And you say, I'm a member of Omaha Bible Church. Well, that'll get you to hell. I read my Bible every day. Man, hell is going to be hotter for you. If that's it, Jesus confronts religious leaders as being worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah because they have more truth. You say, but I've tried to be a good person. I've never killed anybody. Yeah, you're going to hell. Because you don't have perfection. See, the wages of sin isn't try to be a good person. The wages of sin is not read the Bible as much as you might feel that way sometimes when reading a Bible is laborious. The wages of sin is death. 
You need perfection on your side. Jesus provides perfection. What you should say, you say, what do you, what do you, what have you done to prepare for eternity? By God's grace, I'm clinging to Jesus who's perfect. Jesus earned salvation for me. Read it, read it. He gave me justification. Look what it says in Romans 3.25. Whom God put forward, he's talking about Jesus' his son, as a propitiation, as an atonement, as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, the perfect one. And the justifier, the one who declares perfect, of the one who has faith in Jesus. The answer is, I've believed in Jesus. I've had faith in Jesus. Chapter 4 uses the, uh, the English synonym is used, but it's the same Greek word. I've trusted in Jesus. How do you prepare to meet God? You trust in Christ. His perfection, His perfect atonement, His perfect righteousness. That's how you prepare. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It's trust, trust, trust. Depend, depend, depend. That's why the Bible uses substitutionary terms all the time. The just for the unjust. Think about it in these terms. It might help you. When you get hurt, if you're a soccer player, if you're not, pretend. You get hurt and you can't play the game. So you have a substitute go in and play the game for you and do it all for you. You don't go in gunny sacks and do three-legged race soccer. It's all the other player. That's a good image of what substitution is, the just for the unjust. And here's how we errantly think, we wrongly think about it sometimes of Christianity. We think perhaps what it is, I watch that other player play so well that it inspires me to then go ahead and do it myself. No. If you have a substitute, you are out of the game because you can't do it. And that's humbling. But it's how it works. The just Jesus for the unjust pat so that he might bring us to God. He plays a perfect game every time. You know, what would Jesus do bracelets for athletics? Um, he would win. <laughs> you know, I just don't play sports with what would Jesus do because I just feel really unchristlike. <laughs> He's perfect. Unless he didn't want to win for some reason, just to prove a point. Jesus always did the right thing. That's why the bracelets, even though we don't have them anymore, have always been so lame. What did Jesus do? The essence of Christianity, by the way, is not what would Jesus do. The essence of Christianity is what did Jesus do. And now in light of that, most certainly we would want to do what Jesus did as far as what we can do as his disciples and followers. But if you want to be ready to meet God, you've got to have perfection. Perfection comes through faith, trust, dependence. Okay, now let's look at it in a Christian sense. Once that's happened, realize it hasn't happened for all of you. I don't think that's probably the case given our big group here. But if you've, by God's grace, come to the place where you're trusting in Christ and not in yourself, 
Now let's talk about living in preparation for dying in light of Psalm 90. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. I got to tell you, it's kind of funny. This is what I wanted to talk about to begin with. <laughs> last Sunday, I preached in Psalm 90. I just wanted to do this last part. This is how this whole thing got started. Pray for me. <laughs> I'm either horrible with managing time and planning for messages, or, you know what, I'm compelled to not assume these things. And I hope it's the latter. Maybe it's some of each. But I do feel a pastoral burden for those of you who are Christians to live well so that you die well. In the spirit of Psalm 90, and this applies to every single one of you if you're five years old or you are 95 years old. Because we're all going to die. What do we do practically? If you will, what do we do once we cross the line of Romans 12.1 where now we want to live for Christ because of what He's done for us? Now that we're so glad that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, I want to live like a Christian. How do I get ready to die responsibly in a way that honors Christ, in a way that is truly Christian and pleasing to the Lord Jesus? Well, in one sense, it's super broad. Mm, live like a Christian. Right? In one sense, I can't give you a list of here are the five things you must do and you'll be ready to die well. Unless number one on the list is live well. And I don't mean it in some sort of Norman Vincent Peale quote book kind of sense. Live well as in live like a Christian. And the more you mature and the more that you grow and the more that you understand the value of eternity and the more you understand uh, this world as God would describe it, you're growing spiritually. And you know what? You're getting closer and closer to being ready to meet your maker. Grow up in Christ. I'm looking forward to getting to Romans 12, which is where we're headed once everybody gets back from vacation. We get to in September. Because it's talking, if you will, about living well. In light of the cross, how do we live? You want to prepare to die well? You want to prepare to live well? Which is just Christian living. But I do want to offer perhaps some things for that kind of list, if you will. And one of them would be, ask God for help to number your days. Moses is called the man of God. He's a godly person in Psalm 90. And he says, God, teach us to number our days. And so I'm going to say, why don't you borrow that prayer? Make it your prayer. God, I know that the end's coming. Teach me to number my days so that I have a heart of wisdom. God, help me, therefore, not to live in denial like everybody around me. Help me to be wise here. The whole, you're going to have to be countercultural. Maybe countercultural in your own family. You got to plan for it. You got to think ahead. Maybe another helpful thing develop a biblical perspective on suffering. Develop a biblical perspective on suffering. If you don't have a category in your Christian worldview for suffering, your Christian worldview really isn't very Christian. Psalm 90 is a great place to start. It explains where suffering comes from and how you can have gladness in the middle of the suffering. Romans 8 is a gold mine for understanding Christian worldview for suffering.
because everything is turned upside down and suffering is real. It's not made up. Pain is real. Death is real. Contrary to Christian science. It's real and, and Romans affirms it. But it talks about how because of what Jesus has done, everything in our future has already been solidified and sure and absolute and taken care of. And so you actually can face the real junky stuff along the way. And you can see how the gospel really is the solution even to dealing with the suffering, even if you've been a Christian for 87 years. It's gospel, 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 gospel. Have a Christian worldview of suffering. Oh, and, and it doesn't just include the cross for salvation. It includes the cross for your suffering. Remember Isaiah 53. It's about atonement and Christ's substitutionary death and we love it for salvation. But it does say by His stripes, by His wounds, we are healed. And I don't think that's talking about how if I just say that enough times, my back won't hurt anymore. Because quite frankly, I'm not healed. I think Isaiah 53 in history proves it, and my life and your life proves it, and every time somebody dies, it proves this interpretation. It's using, by His stripes, you are healed in the past tense in the Romans 8 kind of sense. You have been glorified in Christ. Wait a minute, no I haven't. That happens in the future. Yeah, but it says it in the past tense because it's tied to what Christ has done in Romans chapter 8. You know Romans 8, right? Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. And those who He called, He also justified. And those He also he justified, He glorified. But I'm not glorified. I still struggle with sin. Ugh. And you all know it. My wife especially. But the Bible speaks it in of it in terms of past tense because it's tied to Christ's work. Isaiah 53, you are healed. When you suffer and all the garbage you might go through, what's the solution? Ultimately, the solution is something that's already been solved. Ultimately, the solution is Jesus Christ. And you need to not move past the gospel. You need to love the gospel like you've never loved the gospel before and love Christ like you've never loved Christ before. Biblical worldview for suffering. As I mentioned last time, it's not why do bad things happen to good people. Remember, we're fallen and sinful. And if anything, we're saying, why do good things happen to bad people? But then we become part of Christ's body and we know that ultimately all the good will happen to us. Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8. Own Romans 8. You want to prepare to, to breathe your last breath and suffer along the way through who knows how many kinds of treatments? Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8, Romans 8. And it doesn't mean it'll all go well or be happy. But even as Moses prayed, amidst the turmoil and the suffering, there can be gladness because you know how it's going to end. There can be rejoicing because you know you have a perfect Savior and it's not going to last forever. A biblical worldview of suffering. You might want to just jot down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. As you do suffer and we suffer in different ways, 
I like First Thess 4.13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Great Christian euphemism for death, because it's temporary, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now that's talking about those of us who are left behind when you die. But by way of application, couldn't we have it apply to us in the midst of suffering? Back up a little bit. When you die, people who love you will grieve. Christians who love you will grieve. The Bible doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't do that because you're a Christian. You know? Suck it up, pal. It doesn't do that. Grieving is just normal. You're sad because you love this person and they're not here anymore. But you don't grieve like a pagan. You don't grieve like those who have no hope. It's a great text. But I would even say, in principle, apply that to your own suffering in life. You don't suffer headed toward final breaths as someone who has no hope like the others do. But sadly, too many times, Christians suffer like pagans. We just don't want it to be that way by God's grace. Just a couple more things to close things out. Practically speaking, not only a a Christian worldview of suffering, let's summarize it this way. Take care of your responsibilities. Okay. The godly prayer is, God, teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom because you know what? 70 or 80 years. And by the way, you don't even know when that's going to come up. Well, take care of your responsibilities. What responsibilities do you have? You probably have some. I know we're all at different places in life. But the Christian thing to do is to take care of your responsibilities and not pretend like death never happens. Lord, in light of death coming, teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom. It would be very wise if you took care of your responsibilities. It would be very Christianly if you did that. Listen to this text, which is not about people dying, but it's about people who don't take care of their responsibilities. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yikes! The Bible says that Christians can act in a worse way than non-Christians? Yeah! When? When you don't provide for your family. Now, we could apply that to somebody who was lazy and won't work. I'm going to suggest to you that by way of application, I'm going to apply it to somebody who doesn't take care of their family because they are supposed to number their days and plan accordingly, given a heart of wisdom. Can I be really bold, even though the Bible doesn't say this, and say, in our culture, for many of you who are the breadwinners of your home, who have children you're responsible for, translate that into, you better have life insurance. Let's not have the eulogy passage at your funeral, even though we would never actually read it, be 1 Timothy chapter 5. Worse than an unbeliever. Because he didn't put on a heart of wisdom, didn't number his days, and therefore lived like a pagan in the name of being a Christian. Is 
In premarital counseling at Omaha Bible Church, that's something we, we don't say you must have life insurance and you must have a will or whatever you need in your particular state to make sure your children go to believing homes if you die because you're responsible for them and you wouldn't want them to go to a pagan home because then you're not obviously not providing. But we do say, please come up with a plan and articulate a plan you have so that when you have children, if God gives them to you, or some great financial responsibility or something like that, write down what your plan is going to be when you're going to do something responsibly about that. Because we don't want you to live worse than an unbeliever, because the unbelievers do that. It's an important issue. By the way, if there's anything we can do to help you to plan I might not be able to help you, but I can find somebody who can help you, and I'm willing to help in that way. Let's live well as Christians. Let's die well as Christians. Let's not live like pagans, pretending like it's never going to end. Let's pray the prayer of Psalm 90. God, teach us to number our days. Give us a heart of wisdom. Plan. It's going to happen. Maybe just one more thing. just said it, so I have to just say it again. Plan. You're going to have a funeral. I would love it if you would plan for your funeral. And the people you love would love it if you'd plan for your funeral. Those of you who are here and they are seven years old, you don't have to do it this week. Um, Plan for your funeral. If you don't, I think you'll be honored and Christ will be honored. We'll love you in that way amidst the grieving. But it might be a helpful thing. I've got this envelope in the basement of our house that needs to be updated, by the way. So I'll repent after the service too. An envelope in my office in the basement. It's sealed, you know, so nobody looks in there. And it said, it says in big letters, when I die. Easy to find. Easy to find so that if Molly and I go down in an airplane somewhere, somebody will find it quickly. I've actually given it to other people too and sealed it. When I die, if I die before my wife, she can find it. It's got bank accounts in it. It's got life insurance policy information in it. Not only that, there's a letter to her talking about why this is not a good time to be bitter. It's a providence of God saying things to her on a personal level some things about what I want to be done with some of my things, a letter to each of the children, but we keep having them, so I need to update those. (laughs) Why death happens and how to think about death. Why not plan? I don't know how to say it to you. You're going to die. Why wouldn't you want to... Why would you plan for your vacation when you don't even know if you're actually going to get to your destination? But you plan for your vacation... But you are going to die. I have things about my funeral. What I would want to have done, what I wouldn't want to have done. My wife will do whatever she wants. <laughs> Preferences. Don't have a visitation the night before. Because then all those people that don't want to hear the gospel will come and they won't come to the funeral and hear the gospel. Anyway, that's just personal preference. <laughs> I'm not saying that's what you're supposed to do, but I'm trying to think about this stuff. My pagan friends are conniving. 
<laughs> please, please be responsible. Please plan ahead. And you say, what does this have to do with the Bible? You're supposed to teach the Bible. God teaches to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom. This is skillful living, wise living. Tick, tock, tick, tock. You know, certain Christians throughout history have been known as those who die well. I want you to die well. I want to die well. Honoring Christ, bringing glory to Him, acting like a Christian. Well, I'm sure the list of practical things could get longer. So I'm going to leave you with that text in Psalm 90. Please pray that prayer. God, teach me to number my days so that I might have a heart of wisdom. But don't pray that prayer in vain, which we know is not good. Pray that prayer and then act. Do the kinds of things. I'm not saying you have to do what I do. Do the kinds of things we're talking about here. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for time together that we have. Um, thank you for giving us a love for each other. Lord, help us to have an eternal perspective. Even along the way, Lord, you tell us that we're to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. There's so many other things that could be talked about regarding the things we've been talking about this morning. But thank you for Jesus Christ that He's not only taken care of our sin problem, He's not only granted us righteousness through faith, but He's also, by virtue of the fact that He's been raised from the dead, He's guaranteed and promised us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we too will be raised unto newness of life and we too will have new bodies, no more pain, no more suffering, all because of Jesus. Lord, help us to live lives in light of that kind of promise and to have thankful hearts. And I do pray, Lord, as we face death, dying, and suffering, that by your grace we might show loving kindness to each other, um, even against sometimes our sinful nature, and that we might be able to encourage each other to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray, amen.